so I'm back for those of you who don't know me. Um, today we've got two readings. So the first is from Isaiah 45 on page 1093, going from verse 5 to 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And then our second reading today is from Isaiah 49, which should be on page 1100. So from verse one. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my, Lord, my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Well, thank you, Cam, for the invitation to be here. And thank you also for leading us in prayer before. And those, those things that Cam prayed that God would impress on our hearts uh, his global plans and purposes, uh, that's indeed our prayer. And let's trust that God will answer that prayer as we consider these amazing words from his scripture this morning. One of the things I enjoy the most about my role with CMS is journeying with people who are making radical decisions for Christ and for his gospel. It's exhilarating, and at times it's scary, and it often points, a, points an arrow back at my own willingness to make radical decisions for Christ. How do you feel about being a radical disciple? Are you up for it? I'd like to tell you about a few of the people whose radical decisions for Christ have been on my radar lately. A single man wanting to become a missionary, excited about being single because it opens him up to the possibility of taking on more personal risk than if he had a wife and kids to consider. And so he's intentionally looking at the parts of the world where other people just won't go because of the risk of physical danger or government and police opposition or worse. He says, look, someone has to go to these higher risk places and it might as well be me. That's pretty radical. Or a missionary family, some of you may know them as D&T. They're planning to go back to Asia after having worked there for over a decade, establishing ministry, especially among orphans with disabilities. 
But during COVID, Westerners had to leave, and many of the key structures that they had invested their time and, and built up over 13 years or so have now just evaporated. And D&T, nevertheless, are determined to go back, even though it feels like starting from scratch. I think that's radical. One of our workers in a Muslim context, a Muslim-majority country in the Middle East, has asked us to pray for a local woman that she has been supporting. This woman became a Christian from a Muslim background. She didn't tell her husband about it originally. Husband kind of had some idea that this was happening, but certainly didn't think it was genuine until she said to him, it's genuine, I've become a Christian. Well, that didn't go well. Not only has he been beating her, he has been bringing his friends from the mosque to beat her as well. She knew that her husband finding out about this would be difficult, but this has been awful. Now, you know, she could make it go away by leaving the marriage, except that in that, in that culture, she can't do that without losing her children and losing her place in society. She becomes a pariah. She could make this go away by renouncing her faith in Christ. But she won't do that because Jesus is Lord. She's radical. Or a former missionary who received an inheritance, a significant five-figure amount. Now, you know, we often encourage CMS supporters to put CMS in your wills. If, you, if you're redoing your will, please, you know, think about CMS and put your CMS in your will because, you know, this is a long-lasting ministry. Um, of course, you put it in your own will, that's good because your kids have to deal with it. Oh, mum and dad, you're making me share my inheritance with CMS. Um, but what if you yourself receive the inheritance? Well, this missionary, former missionary, contacted me to say they already have enough to live on. And you know what? They're living pretty meagerly. <laughs> they just didn't want to change their standard of living. They wanted CMS to have the whole lot. That's radical. I could tell you 50 other stories of people who are making radical decisions, sometimes significant life point decisions, sometimes just the daily decisions of following Christ the Lord. Now you may be thinking, that, you know, that's inspiring, but it's not really me. Um, sort of makes me shake my head. I'm not a radical. And is it reasonable to think that Christians should be radical? And that's the question I'd like to ask this morning. Could I be a reasonable radical? Now, maybe that's a contradiction in terms. I certainly don't want to be a reckless radical, right? I don't want to be a foolish radical. Maybe I could be a reasonable radical. After all, being reasonable simply means having good reasons. Your friends and family might think you're crazy, but maybe your reasons are sound. So this is the fourth and final talk in this series on mission, and I've been invited to speak on the global nature of mission. After all, if the gospel isn't for the whole world, then why would it be good for me? And why would I be telling other people in my friendship group and so on, if it wasn't also for the whole world? And we'll turn our attention to the world in a minute, but to get there, let's start by considering what it is to be a reasonable radical. What do we learn from reasonable radicals? And I want to look at three perspectives of 
a reasonable rad radical. First, they have a reasonable view of comfort. Second, a reasonable view of God. And third, a reasonable view of God's mission. So let's start with number one. They have a reasonable view of comfort. Because comfort ain't just comfort. You know, it's become more than just pleasurable, enjoyable living for us. Comfort has become something we cannot live without. And you know, I reckon comfort is a bit of a one-way path. You know, you can increase your comforts. That's cool, I like it. You can maintain your comforts. But you can't easily backtrack your comforts. It's really hard taking comforts away and then sort of thinking, oh, that's okay. Do you remember we used to think that 65-inch TVs were extravagant? Not anymore. When I moved to Adelaide 18 years ago, I was embarrassed by my huge TV, 34 inches. But now if I was trying to show someone the footy on my 34-inch TV, I'd be embarrassed that it was too small. Is this reasonable behavior? And the TV question isn't really the big one, is it? Um, the big one, the big question is about idols. Worshipping other gods than the God of the Bible. Having other things in our lives that we think are actually better than God. More important to hang on to those things than to hang on to God for dear life. Things that when push comes to shove, we'd cling on to them rather than clinging on to Christ and the gospel. You know God assumes that those who don't worship him will worship other gods. He says don't do it, but he assumes it will happen. But he is adamant that his people will not worship other gods. Idolatry is the definition of sin. God isn't my God, even though I say he is. And this isn't only wicked, it's, it's unreasonable, it's foolish. And the Bible mocks it. Today's passages are from the Old Testament, and in that Old Testament context, idolatry rears its head as trust in other nations or trusting in the gods of other nations. But these other gods were often depicted by actual idols, you know, physical objects made of metal or wood or something. Israel, why would you look to the gods of the nations to help you when Yahweh, your God, is the God who made the heavens and the earth? Why? We're going to come to some passages in, in Isaiah, but there's one we didn't read. This one's a little bit before the ones we did read. This is from Isaiah 44. And it's a beautiful takedown of idolatry. Idolatry is not reasonable, it's ridiculous. This is from the New International Reader's Version that I'm reading, Isaiah 44 from verse nine. Those who make statues of gods don't amount to anything. And the statues they think so much of are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They don't know anything so they will be put to shame. A carpenter measures a piece of wood with a line, 
He draws a pattern on it with a marker, cuts out a statue with sharp tools, marks it with compasses, shapes it into the form of a beautiful human being. He does this so that he can put it in a temple. He cuts down a cedar tree or maybe takes a cypress or an oak. It might be a tree that grew in the forest or it might be a pine that he planted and the rain made it grow. A man gets wood from trees to burn. He uses some of it to warm himself. He starts a fire and bakes bread. But he also uses some of it to make a god and worship it. He makes a statue of a god and bows down to it. He burns half the wood in the fire, prepares a meal over it, cooks meat over it. He eats until he's full and warms himself. He says, good, I'm getting warm. The fire is nice and hot. From the rest of the wood, he makes a statue. It becomes his god. And he bows down and worships to it. And he prays to it. He says, save me. You are my god. People like that don't even know what they are doing. Their eyes are shut so that they can't see the truth. Their minds are, are closed so that they can't understand it. No one even stops to think about this. No one has any sense or understanding. If anyone did, they would say, I used half the wood for fuel. I even baked bread over the fire. I cooked meat, then I ate it. Should I now make a statue of a god out of the wood that's left over? Should I bow down to a block of wood? The Lord would hate that. That's as foolish as eating ashes. The mind of someone like that has led him astray. He can't save himself. He can't bring himself to say, this thing I'm holding in my right hand isn't really a God at all. For some of you, comfort may not be your main idol. Um, maybe you're competitive and you, you want to win. You want to compare yourself with others and be ahead. You know, maybe that's through your work or through your sport or when you get too old for sport, you find something else that you can win at. Or maybe it's just making a little bit more money than everyone else or having the nicest town, you know, house in town or even you know, having a ministry that's bigger than anyone else's. There's all sorts of things that we can idolise. If, if these things are your anchor, if these things are your heart's desire, are you not a fool? For others of you, pleasure is your heart's desire. This is going to get you what you need in life. And our society, of course, has plenty to offer you, whether it's sex or exhilarating experiences, fine dining, bit of pampering. I'm not saying these things are bad, but are these things your anchor? Because if these things are your anchor, are you not a fool? But I think that for most of us here in comfortable suburban Australia, the biggest idolatry risk is comfort. I cannot walk back my comforts. I can't give this up. Is it downsizing that I'm struggling with? Or is it downgrading the quality of my life in some way? You know, I agonize over this personally. I see the foolishness in my own Life. How will I demonstrate to myself and to God who knows my heart better than I do that I'm not an idolater? And thank God for the cross of Christ which forgives me and yet I must repent and never get caught up in this again. T. 
TVs are trivial examples because, you know, some of us are earning enough money to be able to buy a new TV every year and still give 10 times that amount to gospel ministry and global mission. The real issue is what do we cling to? What could you not lose? The reasonable radical has a reasonable view of comfort. And the second perspective connected to that is that the reasonable radical has a reasonable view of God, the true God. Following Christ is not a poor substitute for joy and happiness. It's the path to joy and happiness. Although worshipping the God of the Bible is a narrow path, it's not an uncertain path. Making sacrifices for God is not crazy, it is sensible. Why? Well, let's hear the words from our first Bible reading again, from Isaiah 45, 5 to 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Brothers and sisters, all other gods are false gods. All other hopes are false hopes. This, this God that I'm reading, this God of Jesus Christ, is the true God, the God of heaven and earth. Now, this is a real perspective shaper. Because I reckon this passage, obviously it tells us, it kind of indicates that God is the creator, but it also indicates that he's the shaper of things. He's active in creation. He's doing stuff every day. He's, and he's working everything together towards his intended purpose for creation. God says, I bring prosperity and create disaster. He says he's the main active agent in the universe and even the main active agent in our lives. As the details of our lives unfold, so too God's will for our lives unfold, unfolds. It's not saying that his will is for us to sin or to make stupid decisions, but even our sin and our stupid decisions he uses to bring about his will. We might be thinking, though, you know, I've, I've made something of myself. You know, I'm doing pretty well. People generally respect me if I compare myself with the people in my year at school. You know, look, my, my family, my, the life I've built for us, come to church. Well, yes, but God says, I bring prosperity. That prosperity of yours, um, you have as a gift, your prosperity is mine to give to you, and I did. I gave it to you. Now, I'm assuming that we all realize that we are very, very, very rich by world standards. You know, in terms of the living population of the world, you know, there's 99% of the world are much poorer than us. And if you include the, the non-living history of humanity, you know, make it 99.99%. 
of humanity is poorer than us. We are rich. <laughs> but what if God took it away? Would that make you panic a little bit? You know, our Reserve Bank is terrified at the moment, aren't they? They're terrified of this thing called inflation. It's a little number and they want to get it between a range and, and they're terrified that actually things could start spiralling out of control. Our society considers this thing called GDP growth, you know, where our economy just keeps on growing bigger and bigger at a particular percentage. And anything that even, we're not even talking about reducing GDP, anything that slows down that growth of GDP is a moral issue in our community. It's wrong and we must vote against it because we're petrified <laughs> of it going the other way. What about you? What if your superannuation balance suddenly disappeared next week? You know, there are no, I'm not going to fear monger this morning any more than I already have. <laughs> there are a number of scenarios that could take our wealth away. We're already seeing major changes to the world order. But you might think, oh, no, 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 no. God would not let that happen. He's a good God. Yes, but this good God brings prosperity and creates disaster. He's done it before, and he's done it for his people and for their benefit. But our, our national stability, I mean, that makes me stable. That's the kind of the bedrock of my life, isn't it? Or my super, or my possibilities in the future. I mean, this is my security. It's the way I'm providing for the days ahead. No. God is your security. The gospel is how God provides for your future. And not just your future. Because the gospel is not just for you. Which brings us to the third perspective of the reasonable radical. And that is that they have a reasonable view of God's mission. God is good. And his plans for the world are good. He's redeeming people. He's giving people new life. He's healing deep wounds. And at the very heart of it, he is bringing people back to himself. That's what redeeming really means. And he calls this salvation. He's rescuing us for, from disaster. And the Bible tells us that the disaster from which we need salvation is actually not the economic collapse or the political collapse but is the separation from God. You want a disaster? That is a perilous disaster to be separated from God. But he has a plan for all this, and it's a plan that's very much in motion, and we call it God's mission. And this mission is declared in the Bible passage we read from Isaiah 49, and all through Isaiah, actually, but this one's a great one. Um, it's a good, this is a good one to actually open up. If you've got the Bibles in front of you, I'd invite you to look at these words. Um, it's kind of addressed to us. You know, it opens with the words, you know, listen to me, you islands. Uh, hear this, you distant nations. Sounds like Australia, doesn't it? Uh, who, who's the speaker? Let me read the first three verses. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born... The Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. 
He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel. Oh, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So, okay, to the original Israelite reader, they're reading that and it sounds like it's, in, in a sense, it's Israel itself speaking, you know, reporting in the third, in verse three, that God has spoken to me and called me his servant Israel. Because Israel's role in verse three, it's right there, is to display God's splendor to the world. But then, you know, assume it's Israel or we'll come, come to this question. They acknowledge that it hasn't worked, verse four. I said, I've labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing at all, yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. That's a pretty generous picture of Israel's failure, um, that she has in some ways done this job of displaying God's glory, but not really. Labored, but not produced anything. And now she has to depend on God's mercy. What's due to me is in the Lord's hand. But now in this next bit from verse five, something is going on. Um, in terms of who's speaking to whom, that helps us, I think. It's sort of Israel speaking here, but notice how the speaker is referring to himself as having the role of bringing Israel back to God. So Israel is bringing Israel back to God. How would that work? Verse five, and now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. This passage is one of the servant songs of Isaiah, where this figure seems to be there, this servant. And sometimes this servant looks like the nation of Israel, but sometimes it looks like an individual person within the nation of Israel, working as Israel, for Israel. So if we were Israelites in the centuries leading up to the coming of Christ, grieving that Israel doesn't appear to have fulfilled its role as the one to display God's splendor to the world, then we might be just waiting for, well, this, there's some kind of servant figure here who's coming. And now, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, we have seen him. Uh, these bits of the servant songs, they just seem to make so much more sense to us too. And now you, you know who it's talking about. You can go back to the top and it reads quite different, differently. For example, verse 3, is God actually telling Jesus that he is Israel, that he's meant to fulfill that role? Let's read what God says to this servant from verse 6. He says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations, the Gentiles, it's the same word, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? To the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. 
because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you, Jesus. This servant of Israel who turns out to be Jesus will not only bring Israel back to God, he will be God's light for the nations, for the whole world, to the ends of the earth, wherever that is these days. Originally it was here. He will display God's splendor in the way Israel, the nation, failed to do. And everyone will notice, even kings and princes will acknowledge him as God's chosen one. Even kings and princes of nations and places that have stood against him will stand up and honor him or kneel down and honor and worship him. This is God's mission, brothers and sisters. This is God's solution. Christ fulfills this servant role given to Israel, that through Israel, God's splendor would be displayed to the whole world. And when Christ does come, what does he do? He does exactly what these servant songs said he would do. God's splendor is displayed through Jesus' miracles. through his teaching, through his authority over evil spirits and even over the teachers and authority figures. God's splendor is displayed through Jesus' compassion to, for the needy and the lost and ultimately his splendor is displayed through Jesus' death and through his glorious resurrection. Praise God. And because of all this, we proclaim Jesus is Lord. The proclamation of Jesus as Lord is the mission of God. It's not a localized mission, it's a global mission. It doesn't mean that God's mission doesn't have a localized component. Because Adelaide is part of the globe that God is saving. But it does mean that God's mission is global. Trinity Church Tonsley, it's too small a thing for you to proclaim Jesus as Lord to the southern suburbs of Adelaide. God has made Christ Lord of all the peoples of the world. When we grasp that Jesus is the displayer of God's splendor, the Lord of all the world, then making radical decisions to go and proclaim him as Lord to the distant nations, that's not unreasonable. It makes a lot of sense. It's rational. As radical as we think people's decisions sometimes are for Christ and the kingdom, they are good reasons. So, conclusion, what about you? Is it unreasonable to make radical decisions based on being loyal to the true God, turning away from idols? Is it unreasonable to be personally engaged in his purposes for the world? No. So what is he putting on your heart to do or to stop doing or to hang on to or to stop hanging on to? How can you be a radical with good reasons?
Three points to finish. Firstly, you know what? Missionaries struggle with exactly the same thing that we're, we're all sort of struggling with together. Um, you know, they're not super Christians. And although as public Christians, you know, we do hold them to a higher standard as we do with ministers and pastors, they struggle with idolatry like the best of us. They too lose sight from time to time of God and his global mission. You might think it's incredible. How could you do that? But it's, it's true. I don't want to put them on a pedestal, even though they have all made and continue to make decisions that are radical as far as the world is concerned. Second, actually I said there were three points to finish. I've added, a, I've added this one, so there's going to be four. <laughs> I added it as Cam was praying at the beginning of the service. I thought, I have to say this. Now you want to know what it is. No matter how radical you get for Jesus, it's not going to save you. The only thing that will save you is the gospel. George Whitfield, before he became a Christian, became so determined to be holy that it made him sick. And he was in bed for six weeks. He couldn't get out because he was working so hard to be holy. And then when he finally came to Christ and said, forgive me and restore me and have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. Well, that burden was lifted. He became a Christian and became one of the greatest preachers of all time. That's the gospel that actually it's Christ who fixes the problems. But nevertheless, point three, some of us need to be the next generation of missionaries from this South Australian Northern Territory branch. Could that be you? Did you know that question was coming? Uh, maybe you've got, you know, you've got no kids. It could be a, a good time in your life. Or maybe you've got young kids. You think we could work with that, like the Purdies. Or maybe the kids have moved out. We could work with that. Or if it's not you to go on global mission, could it be your kids themselves or your grandkids if you know it's great if your kids are on a path towards a profession but what are you praying for that will come out of that profession are you praying that they settle down to the comforts of western suburban living and get comfortable and start worshiping idols i'm sure you're not praying that they'll start worshiping idols it sort of sneaks up on us what, what are you praying for? Or, or are you praying, you know, maybe, okay, become a, Lord, make them a health worker for the gospel. Or make them an engineer or a teacher or a development worker somewhere where the gospel is really needed in a gospel poor part of the world. Imagine my child became so convicted of their faith that they made radical decisions for Jesus. This is a very hard prayer to pray as a parent. You might be committing to 10 or 20 Christmases without them. But... There are good reasons. Fourthly, it's not actually all about becoming missionaries. There are plenty of other ways, too, to be radicals. Mind you, just back on point three again, if you are thinking, if, there, if that thing is in your head, maybe I should think about global mission, that is something to follow up. Come and talk to me. But fourthly, it's not all about becoming missionaries. There are plenty of ways to be radicals with good reasons. I mean, right here, 
We do have neighbours who need bold evangelists. We have friends who need people who would be willing to be scoffed at by them when you mention the gospel. Because if you're not willing to be scoffed at by them, they might never hear it. And it takes a bit of radical boldness to do that. We have ministries here that need generous givers. People who will give massive amounts of money, who will make significant you know, decisions. And we, need, we have ministries that need passionate prayers, people who will devote hours of their week to pray for the missionaries around the world, for the evangelism that's going on in our city and in other parts of the country. The question we should all be asking God is, Lord, how can I be a reasonable radical, a radical with good reasons? What would you like me to do? You've given me my time, you've given me my money, my skills, my prosperity. Lord, how should I be living my life? What sacrifices do you want me to make? Have you made any sacrifices for Jesus? I encourage you to, to give some stuff to him that costs you. Because that's the path of discipleship, that we, we do stuff for him that costs us. And if we haven't got to the point of actually being willing to bear that cost, you know, maybe we're not really giving to him. He's given us everything we have, including the glory of our gospel hope. To finish, it makes sense for a young single man to go to a difficult gospel poor country because Jesus is Lord and they haven't heard it yet. It makes sense to go and continue the work after disappointment because Jesus is Lord and we don't know what his work is at any point. Just go and be willing because he is Lord. It makes sense to stay a Christian even when your husband is persecuting you. There may be other actions you need to take, but you don't give up on Christ because Jesus is Lord. It makes sense to give our whole inheritance to mission because Jesus, is, Jesus, who is the Lord, tells us that we share in his inheritance. You're not actually losing out by being a radical with good reasons. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you humbly knowing that uh, you see our hearts in our minds, you know our desires. You know what we hold back from you. We know, you know our fears. You know our concerns. And uh, Lord, we acknowledge that you've given us a saviour and a gospel that is much bigger than any of these concerns. And so we pray for your spirit to enliven our hearts that we might follow you faithfully. Show us the ways in which you want us to be radical, to be different to this world, to do things that are extraordinary for Christ, not because we win your favour through it, but because we have your favour, and this favour is for the world. So, Lord, we, we need you as your church. We want you to refine us and to shape us, 
to energize us, empower us by your spirit, uh, to send us, to use us, Lord. And we pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen.